Hello and welcome to Map Bites episode 115. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, we're keeping it upbeat with happy talk and deploying copious subtle deviations in logic. Now, the fallout from the great shooting incident of 2018 continues apace. I noticed you added some photos to the show email last time. Good grief, not the photo surely. What? The topless one, you mean? No, not that photo. It was one photo of the shrapnel pulled from my injured shoulder and two photos of Mike, one wielding the actual rifle, the one that did the damage, and the other where he's looking dangerously ponderous with a loaded bow. Now, the one with the shrapnel had next to it a penny piece for scale. It was the ever-wise McJim that pointed out his complete surprise at my inability to spend the last penny, as it were. He said, Ahem, you mean Elaine couldn't figure out what to spend the last penny on, eh? What's the world coming to? Cheers, Jim. Now, it was the emoji of a toilet that got me. Now, I don't know where McJim calls home, but I can assure you, when attempting to spend a penny these days, you won't get much change out of 50p south of the border. But fear not, McJim. There was method in my madness. Despite a few newer style keyboards kicking around MapBytes headquarters, we still have several older style keyboards and two original trackpads that use rechargeable AA batteries. And those battery compartments can be tricky little blighters to open. The perfect implement to extract said batteries by loosening the screw cap is a penny. And that's the reason that I left Mike with it. I obviously confiscated it immediately on our return to the relative safety of MacBytes headquarters, purloining it for my own use. Yes, good one, McJim. We also heard from Alistair with a fabulous tip. He said, Hi crew, I was listening to the latest MacBytes where you described the change in behaviour of the green button with Yosemite. I remember the change well. I do use full screen from time to time, so do use that new functionality. But I also like some applications to be maximised and found another way to do this. Not sure it works with every app, but double clicking the title bar will toggle between maximised and original size, much like Microsoft Windows. But I stumbled, stumbled, oh, stumbled. The teeth. teeth. Shall I say that again? But I stumbled across an even neater trick quite recently. Sometimes I want a window to stay the current width, but use the available height of the screen. What I discovered was you can position your mouse cursor on the edge of the window, but instead of dragging, double click. The edge you do that on will leap to the equivalent edge of the screen. So double click on the bottom edge of the window and it'll stretch to the bottom of the screen. Double click on the top edge and it'll stretch to the top edge of the screen. It works on left and right as well. It even works in corners to snap two edges at once. Note, though, that this action can't simply be undone by double-clicking again on that edge or corner. You have to drag it, like an animal, back to a smaller size away from the edge. And that's from Alistair. Genius. It's the built-in equivalent of something that I've used an app called Moom to do for years. But I'll be using that when I'm forced to use a Mac without Moom. 
Like Spotlight, it's incredibly useful when Alfred isn't available. Now, I always think a Mac is broken if it doesn't do the resizing window magic that I've programmed Moom to do. So that's fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Alistair. In fact, it reminded me of a funny tale when I installed High Sierra, which I should probably keep until we cover High Sierra, but, but I'll share it now. Um, everything was working as expected, and then weirdness started happening for no apparent reason. As I dragged a window near the edge of the screen, it would twang to it. No biggie, I figured. Just needed to find the helpful massive air quotes new setting in system preferences. Well, I hunted high and I hunted low and I could not find a thing. Even more strangely, it was only happening on one machine with high Sierra on it. So to save my immediate sanity, I decided to take a sedative and carry on installing and configuring everything else, intending to sort it out later. I moved on to update the next Mac, installed all the software, etc. And I deliberately checked everything I installed and it was all working as expected. There was certainly no window weirdness going on. A couple of days later, that Mac started doing the very same thing. What the actual? A few more days and bottles of sedatives later, I found the culprit. A tiny, tiny point update. So, you know, x dot x dot x dot tiny point update. Tiny point update to better touch tool had added a window snapping option. Key point here is option, developers. Option. Don't enable it by default in an existing install. Now, the developers actually have a completely different tool called, wait for it, better snap tool. Guess what? If I wanted window snapping, I'd buy it. I don't. But I think we should do a comparison of all the tools out there that provide a similar window snapping feature to see if anything beats Moom. One for a future show, I think. But when I don't have Moom or anything else, I'm going to be using Alistair's tip. Yep. Great tip there, Alistair. That does remind me what you've just talked about of the window snapping in Windows. I think it started with Windows 7. That gets me every time. And you know why? Why? Because the key to activate it uh, left and right is window right arrow and windows left arrow, which on a Mac navigate word by word in your text. And I use that all the time. I do. So inadvertently, I'm snapping windows in windows and I don't like that either. Yeah, but it's not just that. It's not just that. If you actually drag the window towards the edge of the screen, it snaps. And that annoys me in Windows. That has happened to me and um, I cured it. I took my hand off the mouse and left everything be and it, and it worked <laughs> because I didn't know if it could be disabled. To be honest, I'm finding with Windows, um, I have had a physical Windows machine, which doesn't want to play ball at all at the moment, does it? But I'm working on that. Uh, but I've also at the moment got um, I've gone back to a virtual machine, but this time I'm not in Fusion. A story for another day. But I have noticed that everything that annoys me that I want to turn off. So pretty much, you know, along the bar thing at the bottom. I know. Yeah. She said, waving in the air, thinking, what on earth is that thing? The, the taskbar, task that thing. You, you know, at the far corner where it had the clock. I know it well. That was all I really wanted. I didn't really want more than the clock and possibly the date. But now, actually, with it being a virtual machine on a Mac, I don't really need either of those either. Um, and things kept appearing in there that I hadn't added. So, 
you install a piece of software and something appears down there. But it has actually been possible to disable absolutely everything. So maybe there's a way to turn the snapping off. Who knows? How hard have you tried looking for it? Not very. No, we'll do that for next time because it does annoy me, but only because I use shortcut keys. And I remember moving to a Mac. I could not get my head around um, the fact that I think it's end line or something on Windows and it seemed logical. And I moved to a Mac and I'm in my text editor and I'm pressing all of the wrong keys to navigate the text just using my keyboard. And of course, I got into it on the Mac. And now I go back to Windows and it's wholly illogical. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Because to me back then, that was wholly logical. The Mac was illogical. Now the Mac is logical. Windows can't do a thing. But we will. We'll have a look at that. Now, hot on the heels of the Christmas drone debacle at Gatwick came news of, praise yourselves, Wings delivery from Google. Launching in Finland in 2019, carrying parcels up to 1.5 kilograms. And we're assured they've already made 55,000 journeys in Australia. Do notice there, journeys, not deliveries. I wonder what the percentage was that actually got there. Um, now, it's going to be this Finland-like early adoption of new technologies, according to Google. Uh, users will order from a smartphone app. And I'm guessing that's going to be similar to Amazon Prime, which is a special app. When we, I got an email from Amazon a couple of years back saying, you know, Prime is now available in your area. And I thought, fantastic, everything will be here in an hour. And it wasn't. Uh, for a start, there's Prime now one hour and Prime now two hour. And which one you're in, if you've got Prime now at all, depends on your distance from the local warehouse. So we're actually in the two hour slot. But we actually see the warehouse when we're out, don't we? We do. We've actually got two warehouses, one near Old Trafford. I, I kind of I kind of wave to it. Yeah. Yes. There's also another one at the airport. So whenever I've ordered and I'm thinking mainly my orders have been... Um, tech stuff <laughs> there's a surprise um it tends to arrive pretty quickly now the thing is it needs a special app to do it and it's mobile only and it doesn't contain the full range of stock there's this specific selection of items so a subset of their main catalog that's delivered within either one hour or two hours and it has worked well for me i'm thinking particularly in a crisis when my old kindle died i needed a new one asap and it was in my hands within 50 minutes of placing the order. Now, way back, Amazon predicted drone delivery within five years in 2013. So actually, they're behind. Unless they've been testing a stealth drone in West London. Mm. So I did a bit of digging. And for your information, Wings is part of Alphabet's, that's Google, their other beta divisions, and it includes Waymo, the self-driving car. And as I'm looking down this list, I thought, who? And a company that I'm, a, well, is it a company or a service that they bought them? I'm not sure. An internet delivery balloon maker called Loon. Maybe they're going to be delivering by balloon shortly. But I thought, do you know what? Let's file all of this under some time never. Would you choose a drone delivery. Because in my mind, I'm thinking drones getting mugged mid-delivery or shot down by Officer Dibble and his cross-eyed crew, who by all accounts proved themselves to be a worse shot at Gatwick than Mike was in Wales last year when he shot me. I 
can actually imagine folks shooting them out of the sky just to loot the load, though. I wouldn't trust my next iPad delivery to one. I've only just trained the lovely Damien from DPD. Would you trust it? I don't think I'd trust anything to a, a drone. No, no, not at all. No, we're going to look like fossils eventually. But today, I've got to agree with you. No. I'm minded of a thing that happened a long time ago. It was down Devon Way somewhere and a ship was uh, grounded. Do you remember it? It was a container ship. I think they got all the crew off and it disintegrated on rocks and all the stuff that was on board it got washed up on a local beach. Is this coming back to you? Vaguely, yes. And what happened was, as the stuff was being washed up on a beach, yes, there were things like um, huge containers that had obviously come from a company. I remember one of them was full of Pampers nappies. Other nappies are available. Um, But some of the stuff that washed up was clearly stuff that belonged to people, just average people who were maybe moving country. And people were going to the beach and just making off with it. And I thought, I mean, to me, that's just not on. It's not yours. <laughs> Even though it's, it's, what's it called? Is it salvage or something? Legally, you're all right with it, apparently. It's like abandoned stuff if somebody leaves a newspaper. And I can sort of understand it's more, I can't bring myself to say the word accepted, but accepted. If it is a company who've lost something like that, they're insured, etc. But somebody else's personal belongings, like photo albums, Seriously? If I just happened to be passing and I found that kind of stuff, I would seek to to reunite it with its owner. But clearly the mentality wasn't that. I know that the one item that was there that you might remember that was getting washed up, um, those quad bike things. Somebody actually found a few quad bikes on the beach and people were, were travelling for miles to go to this beach to collect them because it was whatever it was called, abandoned stuff. That that just doesn't equate for me. But if people would do that, I can see them shooting my drone out of the sky to to, to salvage my iPad before I get my hands on it. No, uh, Damien. I trust Damien with my iPad and that's You can always trust a delivery man who wears shorts in December, I find. And that's my Damien. Wear shorts in December. Good man. Good man. We all know by now it's not an Apple equipment launch unless there's a crisis. Indeed. And recently, more news of Bendgate. Now, if you've been living under a rock, for which read you're in blissful ignorance, iPods the world over are bending, apparently. So much grumbling has happened. Apple have been forced to address the issue. And in their usual inimitable style, it is not an acknowledgement and an apology. No, it's a long web page, the summary of which is, any bend is a feature, not a bug. And they're not bent. They just have, and I am quoting here, subtle deviations in flatness. Just let that sink in for a moment. Yes. Oh, I so want to use a word I shouldn't. So the usual stance from Apple. And to negate anybody. Now, microns is the magic word here. Any bend, sorry, subtle deviation in flatness bend. More than 300 to 400 microns will be looked at. Does anybody other than Johnny Ive actually own a ruler capable of measuring microns? Now, helpfully, they they do, they help us out here. 400 microns is, according to Apple, less than the thickness 
of four sheets of paper. Mm. Measuring the bend in terms of paper sounds like the Apple version of a tweet bot. Now, for the uninitiated, that was when folks were kicking off about the price of a Tweetbot update and started comparing the upgrade to stuff like the ubiquitous cups of coffee. A bit like when the UK started pricing petrol in litres rather than gallons. If folks knew they were paying almost £6 a gallon for petrol, they'd be rioting in the streets. Price it in litres, we've no clue what we're paying. Now, the weird thing with Apple and their deviation is that they don't mention the weight of the paper they're talking about. Because four pieces of 160 gram paper is considerably thicker than four pieces of 60 gram paper. And some of the photos I've seen show iPads so bent, you could probably get another iPad underneath them. So, did you check yours then? Oh, come on now, man. Do bears? This is a woman who sat swathed in coats checking her iPad 2 for back bleed. Good point. Of course I did. And I was in good company. Our great friend Kevin, big in VA, posted a link about the crisis and I inquired if he'd done the deed with his new baby. You'll be relieved to hear his response was, yes, I have checked Precious the Third and all is good. We're liking the Precious the Third moniker there, Kevin. We are. So uh, a storm in a teacup then? I suspect not if you have a bent iPad. And as ever, only time will tell. It'll either quietly vanish with nothing more to see move along or a class action lawsuit. Watch this space. Yes, watch this space. Potentially big news since the last show regarding Apple Music. We had screaming headlines proclaiming Apple Music will work on Echo speakers starting December the 17th. That's potentially huge news for us here as we have a house full of Amazon Echo devices. We do. We started small with an Echo Dot two years ago. We soon expanded the family to include three Echo Plus speakers, uh, three second-gen Echo speakers, three Echo Shows, two Echo Dots and an Echo Spot. So every room in the house has at least one Echo. The spots used as a bedroom clock, uh, we have a show in the kitchen, another one in the office, uh, together with a second-gen Echo speaker. Just on the count, we have 12 in total. We love them. Now, we don't subscribe to Amazon Music, but we do have access to Prime Music, which is a limited subset of Amazon Music. But Spotify works perfectly on them all. We also use it for radio. And I must admit, I like white noise to sleep. And, and news updates have been quite handy. But right now, why bother? If their lips are moving, they're lying. So do we want Apple Music on our Echoes? I don't subscribe to that either. I don't subscribe to it. I have got a few songs stroke albums, though, bought a long time ago or given to me by Apple. Remember when they used to give you gifts at Christmas? I do. Yes. Not enough of them to worry about, though, to be honest. I have thought the match function might be handy for a few albums, not on Spotify. But the thought of moving from one service to another, not good. Do you fancy it? Uh, in a word, no. No. I actually think, is it a bigger benefit to Apple in shifting subscriptions? Because I don't think Amazon need the help to shift Echo devices. Not with the number you two have bought. That's very true. Now, the Apple HomePod not really been the Echo killer Apple might have wished. It might be a good device. I have no idea. Maybe that's the problem, a lack of understanding on the part of the general public. Because the Echo ads make it a desirable device and it's cheap enough to give us gifts, whether wanted or not. One of our friends, um, his son bought him one last Christmas. 
It took us both until New Year to get it working, and it lasted about a week before he boxed it up again, didn't it? Yeah, he hated that thing, actually, didn't he? (laughs) Do you know, I think the problem was it knew more than he did. Anyway, undeterred by a complete lack of enthusiasm for the Apple Music service full stop, I set about taking one for the MacBytes team and testing the flaming thing. Big mistake. I got as far as the instruction page on Apple.com. Who can guess what happened next? Well, considering it was you, I dread to think. Yes, I'll go with what he said. I was completely thwarted. Geographic discrimination strikes again. As ever for Apple, the world stops at the US border. Not supported in the UK. Do you know, Trump doesn't actually need to build that wall. Apple have pretty much got him covered in the wall garden department. So you were forced to give up then? I pondered. I formulated a solution. It's what I call the Apple defence. And it's specifically for those of us geographically penalised people who have the temerity to exist beyond the borders of the US. We should simply explain to Apple that we're not outside the US. We just have subtle deviations in geography from what they expect. Problem solved. No? Yeah. Fair enough. Well, good luck with convincing Apple with that one. Well, you've been in your element these last few weeks, haven't you? New beta software. I know no fear. What you mean is, you know no sense. That as well. But come on, who can resist a new beta for Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo? Um, I covered a handful of the new features in After Hours uh, Show 3 and quite a few more features in subsequent shows. Uh, New to this version, which is 1.7, is bullets and numbering presets and loads more so check out the after hours episodes for the demonstrations of those it's like mac bites but live what could possibly go wrong there then Mm, anyway there's some gotchas if you're thinking of joining me in this beta thing you need to have a purchased version from the mac app store then you download the beta and you install that beta from serif affinity alongside the existing installed mac app store versions which actually works rather well because it gives me two versions of Affinity Designer to demonstrate and two versions of Affinity Photo, so I'm loving that. Um, In Affinity Photo, there's a a whole new brush engine going on, a completely rewritten raw processing system, new filters, again, written from scratch, uh, completely redesigned adjustments. They've been busy, haven't they? Uh, New elements of the crop tool, the sponge brush tool, and now it's got branching history, which... I can definitely see big uses for. Um, Adobe added something to Photoshop years ago and it was like a selective history brush thing. And it was a nightmare to even logically understand what it did. Um, This is a a better thing, I think. Um, Affinity Design have also added a visible bleed area, which until now it didn't have, which I kind of worked around and I've got a demonstration of that coming up, what I did for it. There's support for high efficiency image formats. There's a new move inside and outside command. And the PDF import exports being rewritten as well. In addition to those bullets and numbering, which I never thought I'd use. And I read about them in, in the release notes and thought, no, because I wouldn't be putting text in there. And the very next day I had a job that needed it. And I was so glad that it was there. 
And Affinity Design has also got that branching history, so might venture off into there as well. Sadly, these are still not the versions that promise integration with the current beta of Affinity Publisher, but they are still well worth trying out. And the biggest benefit for me so far has been that native support for high efficiency um, image formats. Not just in terms of opening them, because prior to that, you had to open them somewhere else and save them as a different file format to even begin editing them. They will natively open in uh, Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo, but also they're supported in all the batch processing stuff. And that was one of the demos I did, so I will put the link in for that. But definitely, if you've got the versions from the App Store, they are worth taking for a spin while they're in beta. Shouldn't be long now before they're out, because I, th I think this beta has been going on a good couple of months now. So take a look at that. I know I shouldn't ask, but on behalf of the MapBiters, I have to ask. How did your latest system updates go? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if you're all familiar with the nine circles of hell in Dante's Inferno, but pretty much like that. It was a simple matter of a security update. It's a very minor thing, I'm assured, as I click update. Seconds later, the iMac reboots. Minutes later, it reboots again. To a grey screen full of error messages and an invitation to try again. There was an OK with no other option, so I grasped at that straw. I rebooted, to be greeted with the same grey screen. And thus ensued an endless round of reboots. Whilst I googled it to see whether you were alone or not. Which, you assured me, I wasn't. No, over 150 reports of exactly the same. And as you read them out, many were in a worse situation than me. Balked installs requiring a genius bar trip and hardware replacements. Yikes. Now, by this stage, I'd managed to fool the system into a successful reboot. I used the disk utility to reboot the machine and it bypassed the balked install. And I took the sage decision to leave the update uninstalled in the Mac App Store. My OCD was obviously tormented by the red circle, but logic overrode that for once. Now, Graham reported success by trying the update a second time. But since the only Mac with a problem at MacBytes headquarters was my main iMac, I decided to leave it until I had the time to fiddle in case it failed again. Eventually, after Christmas, I needed to reboot the system. So not installing it wasn't really an option. It had already downloaded it and was completely spending every waking second telling me to reboot. So I ventured back into the App Store. I updated everything else and finally I clicked the install to update. It downloaded the entire 1.8 gig again, despite having already done it several times. Good job we're not on a limited download here, isn't it? That was the third time it had done it within days. I installed it. It rebooted. It proudly presented me with a grey screen and a surfeit of error text for crying out loud. Nothing else for it but to reboot yet again and hope, per the instructions. So I went via the dish utility, meaning it did actually reboot, and it instantly went into install mode and promptly installed the update again. You know what happened then, don't you? Grey screen and more errors. So I spent about two hours trying to get back to where I'd started. Finally, it said it had done it. I think it had tried it about eight times by this stage. It booted straight into the OS. At last, I started work. Peace reigned for a couple of hours, at which point I noticed one of my cloud-mounted drives wasn't mounted. I attempt to mount it. 
Simple job. No, not having it. No worries, I knew it only needed a reboot. And since the update had installed, I had no worries there. I even checked the Mac App Store. Everything was up to date. I rebooted. At which point it reported it was installing the update. I don't think horse tranquilizers would have calmed me down at this stage. After six more abortive attempts and more reboots than I can count, it finally did it. Can I just say, this really isn't why I use a Mac, Apple. What happened to stuff just working? It's been that long since I felt confident to install anything from Apple. I might as well be on Windows. I seriously hope everyone else had better luck with that update. It was only after all that grief I managed to find a direct link to the combo update for this specific update. Reports of that not causing the kind of havoc I faced abound, so I'll add that link to the show notes as well. So, talking of Windows. Yes, talking Windows. Uh, on the last show, I talked about why I got a Surface, and on this show, I'm going to talk about setting it up. I did say that I'd also talk about the pen and the type cover, but I'm going to leave that until the next show. Although Windows 10 was already installed, it needed activating and some basic config doing, and that's the same as with any Windows on that computer. But the activation, the activation was quite amusing, wasn't it? I loved it. I absolutely adored it. Yes, it said, please activate me. You don't have to, but if you don't, you won't be using Windows, so you know. So once I'd done that, I installed some key apps. First one was Microsoft Office, obviously. That was the main reason that I bought the device. Not tempted with OpenOffice, LibreOffice at all? No, I've not used it for years. Don't use it on the Mac. Therefore, you know, it didn't actually cross my mind to install it. I work on a Windows device? <clears throat> well, I suppose there's always running it in a browser. Oh, don't go there. Seriously, don't go there. Two-factor authentication to get in and 90% of the features missing. Yeah, true. Um, I'm trying to keep the device neat and tidy, and I don't mean free from dirt and dust. What I mean is I don't want to put any unnecessary software on it. I'm sure they're all the same. When you get your new Mac, you just want to keep it neat and tidy. Oh, I absolutely am. Yeah. And then within two days, I'm thinking this isn't going to work unless I put everything known to mankind on it. Exactly. And before I know it, I've got 600 apps in the apps folder. Things go out of the window, don't they? And you just install they do. stuff. Stuff. But you've been very diligent. Mm. I was being very diligent. Acrobat Reader, something else I installed. I need something to read PDFs, obviously. Acrobat was the obvious choice. Um, you reminded me about Foxit Reader that came installed on the Windows laptop that we bought. It's free, but for me, untried and untested. There's also a Mac version of Foxit Reader, although I tend to use PDF Expert on the Mac. I do actually wish there was a Windows version of PDF Expert. I need to find something to edit PDFs with. Any suggestions? I think the, pro the problem with Foxit is the Foxit Reader's very good as a reader. And there is a version of Foxit that will let you edit PDFs, but oh boy, is it expensive. And that's the problem with Windows. There doesn't seem to be the, the same grassroots level developers who put something out at a reasonable price, admittedly, maybe with a subset of the features of Acrobat, but functional. And no, I, I can't think of anything with that. No, oh. unfortunately. 
Oh, well. I can't remember how much the Foxit thing was because there was Foxit Professional, Foxit Enterprise. But just to give you a ballpark figure, hundreds of pounds were, were kicked around. So it wasn't sort of 20, 30, 40 pounds. It was expensive, I remember. I it was. Price. Um, if anybody knows of anything, maybe you're at work and you know, let us know. Then we'll know. Yes, let me know. And don't say Adobe Acrobat. I don't know um, what Adobe Acrobat Reader looks like anymore <laughs> because I use PDF Expert like you. Can't abide Acrobat uh, because Acrobat used to be amazing. Um, now, this was way before I had a Mac. But do you remember when we went out and we bought it and we had like a dial-up connection and it was so slow and we needed to download two meg of updates and it took three days? That's how long ago it was. I remember was. that, yeah. And the fact you could make a PDF with all these clickable links, it was stunning at the time because it was a very high-end publishing type job that you couldn't do that with anything else. And as Acrobat went on, they added more features and et cetera, et cetera. And all was well until they released, uh, is it Acrobat DC? I think it's called the DC version. It's basically Acrobat 11. It's appalling. I do have it because of my Creative Cloud subscription. And I do, I am forced to use it. I'm frantically trying to think now what the specific job was. But whenever I have to use it for whatever the job was, which was something that, that PDF Expert couldn't do. And thankfully, PDF Expert probably has about 95% of the features. But whatever this thing was, I could not find how to use it because they have simplified the interface. Mm, be afraid. Basically, everything's disappeared off the menu and it's all gone behind Fisher Price interface icons. So instead of just having a desktop app that has everything that you need and you just look through the menu and find it, no, you have to click on these big tiles and then it goes into like another level down. Now, I know things have different modes. PDF Expert has different modes. Yeah, two or three. This one's got like 17. And it's not obvious from the names of them what's behind each one. So you might be looking for a feature that doesn't warrant a top level tile. And it could be three levels down in one of the other tiles. But good luck finding which one. So it's absolutely hideous. So even if I had Acrobat, I, I don't think I'd fancy it at all because everything else is far better. We just need to find an editor that's cost effective on Windows and then we're done because just leave Acrobat alone. It's horrible. Moving on, I also install Chrome. Now, Edge comes pre-installed with Windows, but I prefer Chrome. I use it on the Mac, I use it on iOS, I use it to work. And as I've discussed in previous shows, my bookmarks sync across devices. And my bookmarks also get deleted off devices <laughs> when I delete them and the sync goes wrong. Well, the sync didn't go wrong, the sync went right. And I, it was my The sync anyway. did what you told it to do? Exactly. I take the blame. I also install Scrivener. I create my training notes in Scrivener for my courses and for my webinars. So it's critical to my workflow. I've got it installed on all my devices. Now I installed it. I synced it to Dropbox and I tried to open a file and I got this message saying the file was created in a newer version of Scrivener. So I, it can't open it. The problem was that the file had been created in version three on the Mac. So I had to download Scrivener three beta for Windows. I generally don't actually like beta software. I know you, you do. You're playing 
happily with um, Affinity Publisher. But I generally don't like beta software, especially on a new device, but it seems stable enough, I think. Well, technically, you shouldn't have needed the beta version because it was when the Mac version of version 3 came out, which was November 2017, uh, the version 3 for Windows was promised by the end of 2018. Um, But there's been a blog post come out saying it's not going to be ready till the end of quarter two, 2019. So because you've created it in the Mac version, there's absolutely no alternative to this beta version. I haven't had any problems with the beta version on Windows, but I have had problems with the iOS version. Um, but that's a, 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 maybe a narrow use case because I use styles. I know you've not had any problems. No. But the beta one for Windows is fine. The next thing I installed was 1Password. I think that, that goes without saying. It's the app that I can't live without. I'll bet that was the first thing you installed or you wouldn't have your passwords to download anything else. That is very true. I think that probably was the first thing I installed. <laughs> I then installed Dropbox, which needed to be installed for Scrivener to sync. Oh, Dropbox sync. Do you actually sync your entire Dropbox? Actually... I only have, do you remember when we discussed Evernote many years ago and you said, oh, bless, you only have 27 notes? (laughs) Yes. Well, I only have 300 meg of stuff in Dropbox. Oh, bless. Yes. It's it's mainly application support stuff for Scrivener and, uh, and other apps that use Dropbox to sync. For some reason on the Mac, I have synced the entire Dropbox, but on the surface, I decided just to sync the Scrivener folders inside the application support and apps. What about you? I I have a lot more data than that. I'm trying frantically to think what it is. Um, Some are things people have shared with me, um, but that's not taking up that much room. I do have a backup thing going on, but I have about... 15 to 16 gig. Do you remember at the very beginning with Dropbox, you referred other people and stuff and you got more space? So I've got about 15 and a half, 16 gig. But I think in it, I've got between three and a half and four. I do synchronize it to my main Mac. My logic with that is when I back up my main Mac, everything that's in my Dropbox will get backed up automatically. I use it in the same way you do. So mainly um, there's an apps folder, which is a reserved name. So Dropbox have made this apps folder the place that other applications can place their data in. So things you want to synchronize like like Scrivener, um, Typeinator comes to mind. Uh, I think Hazel synchronizes its rules to that. So anything that absolutely needs to synchronize its rules are in there. And on my main Mac, I have done that. I think if it got to any more, I might be tempted, but I deliberately don't like selective sync. And it's because if I choose when I'm configuring it not to synchronize a specific folder or alternatively only to synchronize one or two specific folders, I'm apt to forget that those folders exist and thus the data inside them. Because if it's not instantly there when I do a search, I'm, I'm going to be thinking, oh, maybe I deleted it. I'll just forget. I will. There's far too much on my mind to be thinking like that. So I deliberately don't selectively sync on that. But what I have done is take a look at the way that I use it. And like you, I've really pulled back on my use of it. For example, some of the things that I used to put in there were um, certain applications that I wanted 
on a new install of, um, of Mac OS. So things like Typeinit or whatever. And I'd actually have the installed DMGs and they'd be in there. And I'd also put in there like setup notes and things like that. It made sense to have those things available across all devices. I'll tell you something else that's funny that I had in there. Um, do you remember Backbleedgate? <laughs> Who can forget Backbleedgate? Um, yes. I actually had full wallpaper of different colours that I could open up on my iPad from Dropbox. That's where they actually were. Um, and my Mac to check dead for dead pixels. And they were in Dropbox. That was the kind of stuff that I put in it. So things that I, I needed access to across the board. And I've taken that kind of stuff away and I'm really now just using it in a similar way to you. The only exception is I've got people who have shared things with me in Dropbox um, and they are still there. But other than that, I've moved everything out of Dropbox deliberately for that reason. If Dropbox allowed you to see the files and download them on demand, yes. But they haven't implemented that as far as I know. Or if they have, it'll be only in the business version. I don't use that. So I'm not a fan of selective syncing on the basis I'll forget what I've got in there if I can't actually physically see it. So that's where I'm at with Dropbox. Moving on, I also installed AirServer because. Because? Yes, because. Is that a Jane because? Oh, a Jane because, yes. Um, No, because... I might want to be able to reflect my iPad and iPhone to the Surface because I might one day record some tutorials using the Surface just to see how well it works. Or I might deliver some training using it. You never know. So those are the main apps that I installed on my Surface in the first week or so. However, there's two apps that I actually take for granted on the Mac. There's Typeinator for storing frequently used content items. And there's Alfred for storing clipboard history. These apps don't exist on Windows. So on the next show, I'll explain what I'm using instead to try and keep some sort of parity between the platforms. Now, something caught my eye, Surface related. There were reports of Microsoft's plans for a modular Surface monitor and PC, which sounded remarkably similar to suggestions for the way Apple might head a few years back. The idea is really to swap out elements of a system. Now, from memory, the suggestion involving Apple was that certain elements of the system, like the GPU, would be on board in an external monitor. Now, apparently, you can already swap out processing units on the Surface Hub 2, and Microsoft has already filed patents for a modular Surface PC. Do you ever get the feeling Microsoft are making more progress here than Apple? I hope it's just a case of Apple playing their cards close to their chest and that we might see some real progress from Apple, other than making the same kit in a different colour and upping the price, of course. I actually mentioned an idea for something radical from Apple in a recent After Hours show, and those in the chat were like, yes, I'd buy that in a heartbeat. Now, what was it? A 17-inch iPad, that's what. Now, before you choke on your teeth, think about it. There used to be a 17-inch MacBook Pro. I had one and I loved it. Now, admittedly, it was heavy, but it was a desktop class computer and it was portable. And improvements in design of the iPad might make it possible if we ignore Bendgate. And it could be used as a true external monitor for other kit as well. 
you could use it as a portable second screen for a MacBook Pro and a MacBook Air. It might go 15 inch first, see what the bending's like, but I wouldn't rule it out, she said hopefully. <clears throat> Johnny, are you listening? Does Johnny ever listen? <laughs> no, he's too busy measuring microns. Oh, don't go there. But continuing our series of looking back at previous versions of macOS, we're now going to be looking at El Capitan. Yes, it was announced in June 2015 at WWDC and released end of September. Uh, it supported Macs going back as far as 2007, which sounds like a good thing. Thing was, it needed a minimum of two gig of RAM and computers sold in 2007 didn't necessarily have two gig of RAM. So it may have been a necessity for people who had computers in that era to upgrade their RAM first. And Apple stated that the release focused mainly on our old favourites, performance, stability and security. In other words, don't expect much. Apart from it breaking all your stuff, obviously. It was El Capitan, doubtless you'll recall, that broke support for my scanner, which was um, the Fujitsu S510M. So I have one machine that will forever be on Yosemite. At the moment, that's a 2009 13-inch MacBook Pro. Now, I looked at a new scanner, obviously. Any excuse for new tech? Wasn't cheap. Uh, the first model to replace mine was the ScanSnap iX500. Snappily named, aren't they? That was £365. Now, since then, a new model has come out. It's now the ScanSnap iX1500, which is £466. I have no idea why that would have gone up over 25%, but it's £101 dearer than the model that replaced mine, and mine was about £100 cheaper than that. Yikes. Um, I suppose I should probably buy it before the next one's £567, but, but I digress. Back to LCAP. I actually felt it fragmented the Mac line. There was a lot of confusion because half the Macs that could run it didn't support all the features like handoff, instant hotspot, airdrop and a metal API. Now, the Metal API thing, you could pretty much ignore it, but it came back to bite me when Pixelmator Pro was released. I went to my standard second Mac to buy this thing and it refused point blank to even let me purchase it via the Mac App Store, despite the fact I was running the correct OS that it said it needed to support it. And I only wanted to buy it. Letting me purchase it would have been enough. I didn't need to install it. There was a launch offer that I wanted to take advantage of, but you couldn't buy it without installing it. So I had a nightmare job to do and do it quickly. I'd need my major backups, more backups, system updates. Did I mention backups? Finally, I had an OS installed that supported Metal and I could purchase it. Um, but it was such a faff. And I think if you've got a Mac that can run the OS and it says that that OS is the one that's supported, I think that should be enough. But because of the decisions Apple made, it couldn't run it, it fragmented. Now, it also added that full screen split view. Do you ever use that? No. No, me neither. Not even on a laptop. Hmm. Do you think it's our age? Yeah. No, of course not. Uh, it introduced multi-touch gestures to mail and messages where you swipe to delete and stuff. Ever use that? No. No, me neither. <laughs> 
despite the fact I do have touch pads and a laptop, no, never do that. Doesn't feel natural, doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a mouse person. Um, one thing that they introduced I did quite like was a new system-wide font called San Francisco. I think that came down to iOS in the end, didn't it? But it was a nice font. I, I think that. it did. Made it a little more modern. Spotlight got Alfred-like improvements. So there was more data sources. And I must admit, despite the fact it is actually a lot better than it ever was, it's still the first thing I turn off after I've installed Alfred. One thing I was, as I was researching this, I thought Safari got pinned tabs. Did it? Weren't they always there? So let's file that one under about time. I use pinned tabs all the time. I'm, I'm reckoning you don't. I do in Chrome. Do you? Yeah. Well, I did until they stopped working. Have my good habits finally, finally got through to you? Yeah, but then they stopped working, so I stopped. <sighs> you mean it crashed? Yeah. They do actually work. They they work and they work very well. Um, I use them in Firefox and I use them in Safari. And no, no, I use them in Firefox and I use them in Chrome. Don't ask about Chrome. There's a long story with Chrome. My, my love-hate relationship with Chrome. But they do work pretty well for me. And I like the fact that you know the pin tabs, they just show you the icon. So it's a great place to put things like Gmail and Google Drive and anything else like that that you use. And that's what I use them for. I couldn't believe it took them that long to be added to Safari. I obviously didn't miss them because I don't use Safari in that way. Uh, Safari also learned to airplay videos to Apple TV. Just the video rather than sending your entire desktop. Now, I know you never do that because you don't know where the Apple TV is, do you? Correct. No idea. No, no. I do, but there's another long story involved with that. I'll keep for another day. Now, LCAP introduced a feature I had absolutely no need for. Until Apple ruined how it already worked. You'll know this immediately, I say it, Mike. Wiggle to magnify cursor. Yes, I'm doing it now because I've lost my cursor. The logic was that folks might find it difficult to find the cursor on a large screen. Well, for more years than I care to recall, I had had no problem whatsoever. Across three huge screens. The cursor was always where I left it. My little mouse pointer was where I left it. There wasn't a problem. But from LCAP onwards, it seemed to randomly vanish and move if I so much as blinked. That is a problem I have all the time. I'm constantly losing the mouse pointer and I'm constantly wiggling the mouse. And it annoys me. Well, I have my hand on my mouse and I move it. And I keep my hand on my mouse while I'm doing something else. And then I go back and I think the you know the mouse point has disappeared. And I think, yes, but, but your hand's on the mouse. It can't have moved. And I'll wiggle it slightly. And it's, it's nowhere near where I left it. It'll appear two screens over. I, I won't even be able to move it until I've wiggled it. So I think they've, they've done something catastrophic with it. I don't know whether it happened because they wanted to add this wiggle to magnify, but that mouse pointer moves by itself. It also just disappears by itself. I'm working on the assumption they're thinking maybe if you've stopped moving it, you're watching a video or you're doing something else. So they'll help you out by it just kind of disappears slightly. Yeah, lovely. But when it comes back, can it be where I left it? Apparently not. So that happened with LCAP and it's still driving me insane today. So it is something that I actually do have to have turned on because they've ruined it. The problem with that is if I'm training 
and I move my mouse too quickly, you know, the mouse pointer goes large and people are like, whoa, what was that? So it can ruin demonstrations. Um, and what I've taken to doing in certain applications, uh, Evernote's one where it's a pain, a major pain, where it kind of disappears and it then goes into like an I-beam thing. So you literally cannot see it, not on a, the blue background I've got. I have a thing called Pinpoint and I have a toggle set up for Pinpoint that's very easy to use with one hand, which is a pro tip there. If you're going to do something that does something with your mouse pointer, do it with your left hand or your right hand if you are left handed. And that way you can toggle it on with just one hand while your mouse rests on the other one. So what I do with it, I toggle on Pinpoint and it's like a red dot. Now, the reason it's a red dot is for my demonstrations of iPad related stuff. So what I do when I'm demonstrating an iPad is I turn the cursor off completely and I turn the red dot on and I use that to show where I actually am tapping. But sometimes I actually have to turn that on so I know where my mouse pointer is because they've moved it again. And just as I'm sat here, my mouse pointer has disappeared again. So that just proves the point. I've deliberately left it to the side of the notes and it's just faded away to nothing. So I don't care what they say, they've done something with it and, and it all goes back to LCAP because prior to that, it was absolutely fine. Not happy, not happy at all. Now, related to this, they added a new beach ball. Very pretty, but believe me, I never want to see it. And disk utility was updated for which read decimated. It was nowhere near as easy to use or as fully functional as previous versions. But even that wasn't the worst thing. Sorry, biggest change, biggest changed. No, I mean worst thing. LCAP introduced System Integrity Protection, SIP. I feared it would be worse than it actually was. So it turned out to be more of a mild niggle than a major stumbling block to anything. And most users would doubtless be blissfully unaware of it. The major thing for me was trying to get Bartender to function as it did before LCAP. Now, Bartender is that little utility that hides all your menu item um, icons underneath one icon. And I use that all the time in training as well. Now, it was more of a pain than anything. You needed to boot to recovery mode, use a terminal command, reboot, make the change that you needed so it could control the system, then boot to recovery mode again, then run another terminal command and then reboot again. It's actually, it's sounding like an average update for me, isn't it? So just a way to waste time, really, which I'm happy to report didn't bother me at all. As, and you might need to sit down for this one, I never installed LCAP. Well, not on a production Mac anyway. Only that poor 2009 iMac ever had it installed. And for testing purposes only, you understand. I didn't bother either. Uh, it was too risky that it would break something and there was nothing compelling to make it the updating appealing. My logic exactly. Actually, it was very telling in terms of our belief in Apple. I'd long given up any idea of updating to a new OS for months after the initial release. I waited so long, it just wasn't worth it installing it at all in the end. And I went straight to Sierra. It was the first time in, in a production situation that I'd skipped an OS completely. Is it sad I still hanker after the stability of Snow Leopard? Uh, no, because I do as well. Ah, those were the days. But move on. Those were indeed the days. Yes. 
move on. Let's uh, let's move on to Good But Gone. And today we're looking at Growl. Growl was a free app. Shall I do a lion? Arr. Oh, good grief. <laughs> or was that a mayor? <laughs> or was that, was that a you? No, don't bring me into it. We'll come to that later, shall we? We'll come to that later with shopping with Elaine. <laughs> you like that, don't you? Do it again. Go on. <laughs> Go on, yes. Growl. Growl was a free app and it did what Notification Centre does now. With Growl installed and configured, apps with Growl support sent their notifications to Growl instead of the operating system. Growl then displayed the notification at the top right of the screen. You could actually configure it to have the notification read out to you via text-to-speech. Think of it as a primitive Siri. Now, our main reason for using Growl was to disable notification alerts because, as many people will know, we record a lot of videos and we run numerous training courses. Also, there are times when you just didn't want to be disturbed. So instead of disabling alerts app by app, you'd use Growl to disable all alerts. So say you'd done that, but you wanted to see alerts from a specific app, you could configure Growl to show notifications from just that app. Once Mountain Lion was released with Notification Center, then Growl became pretty much redundant. Although, I don't know if you know, but it's still going, although it's no longer free. You can get it for £3.99 from the App Store. But I guess with Notification Center, there's no longer any reason to use it. Unless you want your alerts to be read out to you. Um, I personally think it was, it was an awesome app in its day as long as you remember to disable notifications which i once forgot to do before delivering a map ice webinar didn't forget twice did you no not once you pointed out my error no <laughs> now it was last updated in october 2013 so it'll be a wonder if it still actually worked and there's definitely not going to be any support for dark mode i could still see a way for it to be relevant if it could control everything that could potentially interrupt my recordings and my training sessions. You've logged into a new iOS device or Mac messages for a start. No, I haven't, Apple. I have installed an update and you are mistakenly telling me that I have, despite DND being turned on. Also, those pesky two-factor messages, which go through to every device you've got that's logged into that iCloud account. I wish I could just disable it on the one I'm actually working on right now. Thank you, Apple. Um, the low ba battery messages are more insistent than I'd like as well, because they start happening at 20%. And I might be wanting to run the device down to actually nothing. And even though I've got DND turned on, the low battery messages appear. New update available notifications from certain apps slip under the radar of Notification Center 2. Yes, Keyboard Maestro, I'm looking at you. You can't turn off auto-update in Keyboard Maestro, and the messages that you get, they just randomly appear whenever they choose. So I have to make sure before I record a video that I've actually gone into Keyboard Maestro and checked for an update. Of course, if I'm taking an hour to record a session, it could well be 55 minutes in. It reminds me that there's a new version. They're very, very, very annoying. Uh, unfortunately, Growl has now got terrible reviews in the Mac App Store. Pretty much abandoned anyway, and I, I think it's a shame because we have fond memories of just how useful it once was. So sad to see it go, I say, but even though it's available, I would say it's gone, wouldn't you? 
growl. Yes. <laughs> Don't it's start gone. again. It is gone. So are you going to share that iOS app that you found? Oh, indeed. Can I do a you and ruin the review? No, I've copyrighted that. Whatever. It's an app called Zipped, and it's an app we initially covered in episode six of After Hours, which was on Christmas Eve, no less. Talk about dedication. Um, it was an instant buy, according to the MacBiters, who were with us live, and several who have mailed me since after watching the show on demand. Now, how it all came about. We had a lovely four-legged house guest, and I was working downstairs away from my beloved iMac. I was working on my iPad, and I needed to zip up a few files to send to a client. Now, I knew Goodreader could create zip files. Goodreader's been around for years and it's an absolutely fantastic app. But it's always felt like a compromise to have to be in Goodreader and their sandbox to do a simple job like zipping some files. Now, iOS had come on a lot in recent years, so I wondered why I couldn't do the job in a more intuitive way. Basically, as I would have done on a Mac, where the job's simple and flexible. So instead of actually doing the simple job I needed to do, I headed off for a quick Google of what options there are available now for doing that seemingly simple job, which was when I discovered Zipped. Now, for the princely sum of 99 pence, I figured it was worth a try. See what happens when I'm parted from my Mac. I start spending money to soothe myself. Now, it's a standalone app. It's not one of these quirky system extension things like Text Expander. Um, standard iOS features are used to perfection to make it feel native. So on an iPad, um, open it in split screen alongside an app such as Files, or you can use it in float over mode, and then simply drag a file or multiple files over to Zipped, and a Zipped archive is created in the same source location as the files. If you drag a zip file over to Zipped, it's unzipped to the same location as that source file. Now, obviously, that's fantastic, but on a phone, that's not going to work. So on a phone, you open the Zip tab and you tap the icon of a box that's on the screen. And that enables you to select the files to be zipped or a zip file to be unzipped. Now, that's only one way to use it. There's also the send sheet option. Now, that's necessary for the iPhone to be usable in other circumstances in the absence of that split screen view. But other than that, it works exactly the same way. You can send any files other than a zip file to create a new zip file containing all the files that you've, you've sent. You can send a zip file and then be offered the alternatives of saving the files inside it or sharing them via the send sheet straight from zipped. Now, I tested it with a few files, including a 200 meg file that was in iCloud. And it downloaded on demand as the zip file was created. And then it automatically uploaded the zipped archive when it had finished. Now, files and zipped, having the, the two apps side by side in split screen works brilliantly for me on the iPad. That's the main way that I use the app. It's worth checking out the settings of the app, though. Because in addition to the standard things, it does straight out of the box, which is zip your files, unzip your files. Um, to do that, the zip naming is set to automatic. But if you would like to create those names manually, you, there's a toggle for that. You can turn it to manual and then it will stop and ask you for a name. In addition to that, there's encryption options. So by default, there's no password on the created zip files, but you can slide an option across and it will stop and ask you for a password at the point it creates the file. 
Now, those two options to me make that incredibly powerful. I actually thought, oh, I'll turn on the manual naming. And then I thought, actually, there's no real need. So I find it better to just make the zip file. But if you've got those needs, then they're taken care of. Now, when it comes to unarchiving, you've got a few options. You can have the option to save in the folder on or off, which would give you more options if you wanted to save them somewhere else. You can also choose to preview the zip file before it unzips. Now, if you choose that option, there's actually like a sub option with it. It enables you to select files within the zip file to open. So if you've got this huge zip file, but you only want a little text file taking out of it, then I would turn that option on and just choose the files that you want. Now, when you do that, you then get an option of where you share the files and you can either share or save the file. So if you choose to share it, it will share it with the share sheet. If you choose to save it, it will open up that dialogue where you select the location and it will save it to that location. There's even options in there for naming folders. So by default, it's set to automatic and it will use the name of the zip file. But you could slide that across to manual and name the folder yourself. Zip's a great addition to your iOS app arsenal. Um, it's so good. It feels like it's part of iOS and it removes the limitations within and the frustrations of using iOS. I mean, I was downstairs. I was thinking, I just want to make a zip file. Nothing's ever simple, is it? And it, once I'd got zipped, it really was. Now, if you're wondering if it's worthwhile investing the 99 pence, if you've already got Goodreader, I'm happy to report Graham has used Goodreader for years, but still bought zipped within seconds of seeing the demo we did uh, just before Christmas. Now, anyway, just in case that isn't enough to sway you, I did a comparison of the two. Goodreader's got a pre-configured mail format. So when you unzip something and you say send it via mail, it's branded with this sent from Goodreader thing all over it, which I thought was unnecessary. There was also no fine level of control with the passwords and it just wasn't as integrated as Zipped either. It's also five times the price of Zipped. Um, Goodreader is 4 99 Zipped is 99 pence. And it's still got that private silo feel to it that it can only zip files that are already within Goodreader. There's no integration with the files app. There's no drag and drop. And it's got limited configuration options. For a start, within Goodreader, you can have Goodreader access any number of cloud services. But to access any of those cloud services, you have to set them up and it's a manual process. If you think about the files app by comparison, it's incredibly simple. If I install Dropbox, when I go into files, there'll be a little notification telling me I've got new sources if I want to enable them. And it's a simple matter of just sliding it across and then it might prompt me for a password or something, but that'll be it. But in Goodreader, I've actually got to go in and configure each one. To make it easier, I've configured one password with a Goodreader tag. So I've configured a tag to make it easier. So what I do is I go to one password and I tap on the tag and the tag will show me all the services that I have enabled in Goodreader on my other devices. And then I go through them, but I have to go through them one at a time. And it's just time consuming. Now, the center share sheet option is much more limited in Goodreader and you've got no selective zipping or unzipping. So having done the comparison, Overall, it's a great app. 
I could actually see Apple adding this sort of functionality to the Files app. But then again, they still only have the most basic zip support on the Mac, unless you're prepared to delve into the utilities folder for the archive utility. And even then, there's not much of an interface to it. So maybe they won't. In which case, you'll need it all the more. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yet again, you surpassed yourself with another shopping adventure this week. Oh, yes. Following my public shaming of Amazon in the last show, they wreaked their revenge this week. I'd ordered two bottles of pills, on separate orders, I might add. In their infinite wisdom, Amazon dispatched them in a single package. But at least they dispatched them. Next morning, I get a notification the order's out for delivery. Sorted. What could possibly go wrong at this stage? Don't ask. Just don't ask. Quite. Within the hour, I get another mail saying they'd refunded both the orders and they wouldn't be arriving at all, much less that day. What? No explanation, just two refunds to be expected within days. Two more mails later and their best advice was to reorder both items. Now, by this stage, it was late Friday and the chances of next day delivery were looking slim. Plus the fact Friday's a busy day here, so by the time I'd returned to my email and started trying to piece together a coherent version of the whole story from the range of emails they'd sent, it was looking like sometime never was the best estimate as to when I'd get my previously ordered items. So I backtracked through the orders to find the items. One is now out of stock and the other has increased in price by 40%. Nice touch, Amazon. Nice touch. So I decide to head off to Holland and Barrett, a UK supplier of vitamins or the health stuff. Now, I wasn't confident they'd have in what I was looking for, but to my surprise and delight, they did. Free delivery to the local store on Monday. So I got everything in the basket. I was just about to check out and another mail arrived from Amazon. What now? Your order has been dispatched and will be with you tomorrow. For crying out loud, which one? So I have to leave everything in the Holland and Barrett basket while I go back to investigate the latest action on the Amazon account. Turns out they'd unilaterally placed a replacement order for one of the orders they'd just refunded. Seriously, if the left knew what the right was doing, they'd be dangerous. So I dash back to the Holland and Barrett order to remove what Amazon had reordered, get it out of the basket and attempt to place the order for the remaining stuff before the 9pm deadline for free Monday delivery. I made it with three seconds to spare. And they say online shopping is the stress-free way to shop. They have clearly never accompanied me on an Amazonian adventure. No, they haven't. And you didn't let Amazon dissuade you from another retail adventure, did you? No, I'm completely fearless. We're back to her complete lack of any kind of sense whatsoever. That as well. Despite being mentally scarred from several previous run-ins with Apple Care, I found myself on the wrong end of yet another alarming encounter. Now, it all started when my fast-becoming venerable 2014 iPhone 6 Plus began shutting down randomly. So, I'd charge the thing, and it would, it would charge fine. Um, I'd be at 40, so anywhere between 40 to 60% battery, and it would just shut down. Research revealed a potentially duff battery. That quaint term, known issue, was used liberally. You know what that means, don't you? Yes, another Apple b- up. Apparently, a battery replacement programme had been announced. 
Now, at the time, I didn't have a problem. So I'll admit, didn't take too much notice. That'll teach me. I checked what the situation was. I discovered that Apple would replace errant batteries for a reduced rate of £25. So all I needed to do was book an appointment with Team Trafford. How difficult could it be? Is that one of your infamous rhetorical questions? Indeed. Much more difficult than it should have been. I tried to book a Genius Bar appointment. Nothing until the weekend before New Year. This was mid-December. Didn't fancy waiting that long. Maybe I could take the easy option and just send it back to Apple. Would that it were that simple. I couldn't confirm if I needed to pay to get the phone to them. Now, I had confirmed a postage charge of £7.44, which was liberally quoted, but there was nothing on their website confirming that that postage to Apple was included. So a chat with Apple's support was called for. Joy. Unbridled joy. I get onto the chat with only one question for them to answer. Does the quoted £7.44 for postage include getting it to Apple as well as getting it back from them? Simple. No? Not for Alexi. He was intent on getting me an appointment at my local Apple store. Why? Because I had one and he didn't. In fact, when he discovered there are actually two Apple stores within eight miles of Mapbyte's headquarters, he nearly wet himself. His nearest Apple store was 180 kilometres away from him. He was falling over himself to get me an appointment. OK, thinks I, I'll bite. What convenient slot can you find me, Alexi? Christmas Eve, 3pm. Are you kidding me? The Trafford Centre at 3pm on Christmas Eve. No. Undeterred, he tried again. Boxing Day, 10 to 12. You mean the day the January sales start? Oh, how about later, said Alexi. Boxing Day, 5.50pm. Not happening, Alexi. Look, Mike and I have done the Boxing Day at the Trafford Centre thing once before, and believe me, we are never doing it again. Do you remember that? It was pre-MacBytes in 2006. The Apple Store had a sale on and I needed Photoshop Elements while I was waiting for a cross-grade upgrade from Adobe. A whole other very long story. And it was on sale from Boxing Day at the Apple Store. Point of which was Boxing Day. Trafford Centre. Never again. I politely declined. I confirmed the repair to be £25. The postage to include the journey both ways for a total of £32.44. And I could organise it all online. Bye bye, Alexi. I had a think. No panic, right? I could always try a walk-in before Christmas week. And the madness of sales silly season started, right? I wasn't completely convinced of the wisdom of such a venture during the festive period, but worth considering, surely. I kept an eye on the traffic in the vain hope it might be light enough to risk a sortie. Oh dear. I seriously <laughs> wish I hadn't bothered. Despite living only two and a half miles from the Trafford Centre, there was just no way. In the few days that I was keeping my eye on the traffic, the following are just the highlights of the local traffic news. 21st December, pile up on the M60. 22nd of December, 
Barton Bridge closed due to an accident. 23rd of December. That wasn't a good day at all. Two car smash. People standing in the middle of the motorway closed it in both directions. Following that, suicidal man on a bridge closed the motorway almost as soon as it was reopened. Christmas Eve. HGV broke down, closed two lanes. Later in the day, Christmas Eve, police caught a drugged-up trucker forcing him onto the hard shoulder. Later still, Christmas Eve, drunk driver chased clockwise around the M60. At this stage, I gave up thinking of getting this sorted before Christmas. Well, Christmas 2018, anyway. It was either that or risking venturing there cross-country. Now, I know, two and a half miles is nothing. But since the terrain is traversed by the River Mersey, it would have meant either getting very wet or procuring a dinghy, which would still leave the not insignificant matter of playing an inadvisably tricky game of chicken to navigate my way across the aforementioned M60. Given the traffic, I feared even Santa wouldn't have any more luck than me and he was going to have a lot more work to do. But there was always the few days between Christmas and New Year, right? Yeah, that's right. The aforementioned sales period. This was so not happening. I'd have needed a tank to take on the inevitable bevy of shopzillas prowling the miles then, which was when I returned to the web. Which was when I discovered the £25 rate was only available until the 31st of December. After that, it was increasing to £45. Damn it. Still cheaper than the standard repair price of £79, though. There was only one thing for it. I was going to have to try the send-in option. I'd seen the page on my previous forays into the support pages and I'd confirmed the price to be £25. Remember that, that's important. All I needed to do now was complete the process. Did I mention by this stage it was 3pm on the 31st of December? <clears throat> Cutting it fine much. I logged in. I found the page. I completed the required details. I clicked continue. I got a message. This page can't be displayed right now. Try again later. What? Oh, come on. Six refreshes later. Six times I put my data in. It sprang to life. And Apple proudly displayed the total price to be £37.50 plus postage. What? We'd had £25, £32.44, which was £25 plus postage, or £45 if I left it till 2019, but £37.50? What was this? Bid a note? Apple pricing roulette? Now, since I'd had trouble getting the page to load at all, I started again. It must be a mistake, thought I. No, nope, same price. You suggested the best of three, which seemed a wise idea at the time. Same result, though. OK, enough Apple bingo. I was going to have to speak with somebody. This won't end well. Yes, you took the words right out of my mouth. I do not like the phone. I hate using the phone. But when goaded, I will. And it's not pretty. Think Hannibal Lecter foaming at the mouth. <sighs> More Hannibal Lecter nibbling and twitching while they lie their way through the call until I pounce. And rip them a new one. Which was exactly what happened. Now, I don't often have the pleasure of hearing these calls. The nearest I recall was catching the tail end of a call with Orange a few years ago. The way you slam that phone down still terrifies me today. This was going to be a rare treat. I don't think she thought it was a treat of any description. I took her through all the previous dealings and I got her to confirm the content of the previous chat. 
especially the price. She agreed with me, £25 plus postage. That was when I asked the simple question, why is the site showing me £37.50? Stumped her completely. Much rumination followed as she wriggled on the hook and I suggested she process the repair herself for the price quoted since there was no way I could convince the website to play ball. She grasped at the straw I offered and agreed. She went through the process. She confirmed everything but the price. I confirmed the total price three times. I can confirm that. You probably wondered why. I'm a veteran at these things, sadly. What they say and what actually happens are usually two very different things, and I wasn't wrong. She confirmed the total price to be £27. Here we go again. Where does she get 27 from? She then added £27, three pence in total to be precise. That didn't provide any clarity whatsoever. I asked her to check again. £27 and three pence in total. I took her through it all again. After the third attempt, she twigged her mistake. It was £27 and three pence plus VAT for a total of £32 and 44 pence. Success! She said I would receive a confirmation and a request for payment. She added the repair wouldn't be confirmed until I'd paid. Finishing with asking me if there was anything else I needed help with. That was when I saw the look on your face and almost felt sorry for her. I said, and I quote, don't move. You're going nowhere until I have the email, I have paid, and I have a final confirmation of everything being sorted ready for collection. Other than a squeak of acquiescence, there wasn't another peep more from her until all was well. When you finally let the poor girl go. Come on, you can't quote eight different prices for the same repair and get off the phone unscathed. For reference, those prices were £25, £32.44, £37.50, £27 and three pence, £45, £52.44, £79 and £86.44. Mm, confused much. Now, my baby left the safe and warm cocoon of MacBytes headquarters on Monday. Watch this space. We certainly will, with interest. <laughs> you like that, don't you? I do. Good. I do. I can see use for this after the show, but carry on. Oh, OK, good. Uh, we've been going great guns on the live show front with After Hours. We're up to show 11 now. It's live and it's a load of fun. Uh, we have This Week at Matt Bites headquarters, we have chat, we have demos, and much more. Join us live on a Friday night at 9pm. Now, having said that, the next show is on a Saturday. <clears throat> there is reason for this. The next live show is the 26th of January at 9pm. You do realise, don't you, up to show 11, that's just under 10% of the number of MacBite shows in 11 years. It's amazing what consistency can do. It is. And it's something very special in this upcoming show, isn't it? Absolutely. No self-respecting MacBiter will want to miss it, believe me. So just to confirm that, it is Saturday, the 26th of January at 9pm UK time. That's 1pm Pacific, 4pm Eastern. And I have it on good authority from Petrick, 10am Sunday in New Zealand. Be there, don't miss it. Well, that's it for this episode of Matt Bites. As always, we'd love to hear from you. 
So send in your questions, your comments, your queries by email to mapbytesuk at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash mapbytes. And follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thomasmike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. Did she really just use the word consistency to describe the crew's output? Consistency? That's a word I've never heard uttered here at MacBytes headquarters. Shall I look it up? No, we have people for that now. Alexa. What on earth does the word consistency mean? The noun consistency is usually defined as a degree of density, firmness, viscosity, etc. A degree of density? Now, that explains a lot. There are times I'm convinced you can't get denser than the crew.